In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering what you need to look into when buying land to build a home on, what not to forget when you're building a property portfolio to retire on, things to consider when buying a home in the top price bracket for an area, reasons why some apartment buildings have to impose special levies, and whether property buyers will pay more for sustainable homes. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Okay, our first question is from Mitchell. And here it is. My questions in relation to buying land and building a new home. Are there any things a buyer should look for in land besides location and size? If it slopes, question mark, do all new properties decrease in value after build? Over to you, Chris. What do you think? Thank you for the question, Mitchell. It's a very interesting one where um, if you have been listening to this podcast for some time, you obviously can see that we're massive fans of established property um, very scarce land and um, houses with a bit of character that have got scarcity to them. But sometimes, you know, clients will want to consider, you know, making their own home. And, um, and sometimes it can be a great idea. And I think where it's not a great idea is when you're buying land that's not scarce, um, such as, you know, a new house and land package um, in the fringes or even those sort of infill sites. You know, they are quite common where, um, it used to be something and then all of a sudden there's 500 new homes in a middle ring suburb. Um, I think they're a bit dangerous as well. So I guess it's the scarcity of the land that really matters if you're going to go down a new home because you want to make sure that over time that land goes up because the house itself is probably going to depreciate even if it is a nice-looking house. Most of the times, you know, everything ages with time, um, fashions, etc. Well, that's the thing. There is an element of fashion when it comes to architecture and things go through cycles or styles go through cycles. And certainly in the 90s, think about all those glass bricks and angled rooms that are so unfashionable now. And before that, the 90s, split, uh, sorry, the 80s split level homes, which are actually starting to come into fashion again. And, you know, so there's a whole periods of time where, you know, whatever it is you buy sort of devalues, not just because buildings depreciate, but because of the fashion element. And like you say, the scarcity of character homes, then they sort of come into their own Victorian cottages, for instance, Edwardian cottages. Well, you can't build them anymore. And they sort of, I think they'll be going to be in fashion forever, really, because they're sort of vintage, really. The things to consider too are development restrictions and what you can build on the land. So if you're buying a house and land package, well, scarcity is an issue, same, 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 little boxes on a hillside, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's a problem. But if you're buying a block of land in an area that's established where it's sort of one block in a in a street that somehow has been subdivided off a big block or potentially you're buying a house to knock down and rebuild. So you've got to look at, well, what is the rest of the suburb doing 
And is it going to look like a mishmash? And is that going to impact on prices long term? Because, you know, Willoughby is an example. Willoughby is a suburb where some of the suburb is conservation. And so it's got streets, a beautiful, you know, period facades, and that really adds value. And then you've got other parts of the suburb where you can knock down houses and, and you can build under complying development, which means that it's cheaper to build, but long term, the value of the asset is not going to be as high because, as I said before, you you know, buildings date and they get out of fashion. And some time ago, we will uh, buying a house in Strathfield. And it was interesting because there were a lot of knockdown rebuilds there and some had been architecturally designed and others had been, you know, the big sort of expensive but project homes. And on the same sort of size block of land, similar size home, similar location, you would see a million dollar difference between the architectural style home and the project home. So over time, that sort of gap between, you know, what you put on it, um, between, a, a, you know, a good decision and a more expensive decision, obviously, and, and you know, more of a, a budget type build, that gap can actually translate into much less uh, capital growth. And so you're not really maximising the value of the land that you built the property on. Yeah, it's an interesting point around Strathfield and Willoughby. I mean, we've got some clients that are doing quite big renos and definitely knockdowns as well. And um, you know, I always like to check in and they say, oh, you know, planning the DA is going to go in and we should have it in a couple of months and then I'll touch base a couple months later and they say, oh, we're hitting problems, um, you know, neighbour issues, council being picky. And, um, you know, it's like trying to buy a good property. If it's hard to buy, it's actually a good sign. And so if it's <laughs> hard to get your sort of development approval, it's hard to get your renovation through, it's good because it, what it does protects neighbours once you've got the property and you've done your reno, doing things that are going to impact your property or change the whole feel of the suburb. Um, you know, when I had a client trying to buy a new townhouse um, up in the Central Coast just recently and um, there's not that many new townhouses up there because developers haven't gone there because, you know, it takes, they weren't, didn't think they could sell the stock a couple of years ago. So this person was maybe a bit of foresight, this developer, um, and it's probably going to do quite well out of it because he's beat the market. But in five years' time, if he's been able to sell well those townhouses, the whole street will be townhouses because developers will be like, there's a way to make money here. Um, and so you just got to be really careful when you're doing a build that, you know, things can really change over time. So if you can do a knockdown rebuild really easily, well, that means the neighbour can do it and you just aren't in control of that. You just don't know what's going to happen. I think he also asked a question about, you know, if it slopes, for instance, and and certainly level sites with easy access, you know, for builders to bring materials in, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they're always going to be cheaper to build on than, say, a sloping site or a site with lots of rock or not enough rock, actually, because you need rock too to, for your foundation. So so there's there's a lot of aspects to the build costs other than just simply, you know, putting a house on a block of land. And there's obviously the hidden costs of, of um, approvals and various searches and various, you know, deposits to council, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and in, you can get some fixed price contracts and, and some cost plus, and there's, there's a whole world out there that needs to be considered. I think too, that it does lead into a question from Rebecca that we got via Facebook. I know from listening to your podcast for the last couple of years, established wins over house and land packages, but can we explore the case of PPR or principal place of residence, how does buying your own land, a building versus house and land packages and renovation of established? And it does it does very much depend on the location 
and what you can afford. And I think what you said there about, you know, if it's easy to develop, then that's a warning sign in exactly, it is a very, very good point. So, um, you know, food for thought there. And I get also the thing too that I notice is that when the market does get difficult, people do start turning to the idea of knocking down and rebuilding or trying to buy land and build as an easier solution. And it's sort of interesting when you think building is easier than buying established, it sort of somewhat says mm. a lot about market conditions, but it does, it is something that I think a lot of buyers turn to thinking that that's going to be easier than trying to find the, you know, in inverted commas, the perfect home. Yeah, I think you've got to be really careful when you're trying to do house and land package. You know, it's very rare that you're going to, from an investment point of view, buy something that's a great investment, you know, because it has to be on a very scarce location that just doesn't really exist. We had a client looking at one just a couple of weeks ago where um, it was a 2,000 square metre block and they kind of said, well, it's got to be scarce. There's not many 2,000 square metre blocks around here. And I said, well, just go on the satellite, you know, Google Maps and just have a look at all that land. Um, who's to say that they don't all become 2,000 square metre blocks if they sell? Um, and so, you know, you might think that you're buying something scarce, but it might not be um, in the future. I think if you if you talk about the other two options, so uh, doing a renovation of an established, um, you know, we probably think that's probably the best option because if you're buying something that's established, if it's got a frontage that's got character to it that can't be replicated, and then you renovate out the back that's nice and modern, um, over time, the front won't age. If anything, it becomes more desirable over time. But if you do a, a knockdown rebuild just because of those sort of fashion trends, um, you know, they do age really fast unless they're pretty special. Also, to do a, a sort of knockdown rebuild, it's actually quite difficult from a finance point of view. We've got a client at the moment, you know, saying, oh, we don't think we can find what we want. We're just going to do a knockdown rebuild. And the reality is they can't do it because mm. the deposit you need is a lot larger than the deposit you need to buy something and then renovate. Well, buy something and then renovate. The reason is that banks, um, a lot of banks don't want to do construction loans over eighty percent LVRs, um, and even if they do, some will. Um, you have two things that two problems that you'll get down the the line. The first problem you'll find is that building costs will be a lot more than you expect. I mean, you've just done a a build. Um, Veronica, I'm doing a pretty big uh, landscaping renovation at the moment um, <laughs> and I was laughing when you were talking about digging. Um, I didn't have a clue how much digging that was going to be required <laughs> um, and the access problems um, that we're facing, but we're getting through it. But, yeah, that was not in the budget, you know. Um, and so the build costs, um, especially when the market's hot, builders, um, you want to work with the good ones, you want to build a nice house, right? You don't want to be left in the lurch halfway through a build or them to collapse or um, etc. So even if you pick a good builder, when when they're busy um, and they're locking work in six, 12 months in the in advance, are they going to throw a little number down on the contract or are they going to throw a big number and hope you take it? And what we've seen is building costs rise dramatically over the last five years. Is that what you've seen, Veronica? Yeah, uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct. It was funny. They did sort of seem to slow down a little probably in, and very nicely for me yeah. right when I actually started signed with my builder, you know, and the architect had said to me, look, this is the first time in quite some time where I've got builders calling me asking if we've got something for them to tender on. And, but that was short lived mm. because then of course, you know, I literally, that was a nine month build and I moved in just before um, lockdown. And then now with COVID, it, they're, they're so ridiculously busy. They're, they've actually got contracts signed out 12 months now. 
And so no one's knocking on the yeah. architect's doors asking if they can quote, you know, if they can tender. So there is there was a little tiny um, area there or opportunity yeah, okay. to, to step in, but it, it's, it seems to be that that door has closed. But you're absolutely right. And, you know, the builders also will pick and choose the sorts of uh, jobs that they want and that fit best in their in their yep. um, capability <laughs> and they will quote accordingly. You know, they'll quote high if they don't want your business, put it that way. <laughs> And this is one of the reasons why people do go for house and land packages, or they do go for project builders, because you know that's it's a it's a factory effectively. It's a it's a you know very much a process, and and um, you know they've you know the the it's the economies of scales and the whole bit. So it's a totally different exercise building a house in that way than it is to do what I did, which was actually to do pretty much a knockdown and rebuild, retaining three walls, um, but, you know, using an architect, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're very, very different um, beasts, if you like. Yeah, some clients look at these modular homes as well, where I'm sure some people get very excited when we had um, we had Archiblocks on last year. There's, they're mm. just one of the modular homes sort of um, pro-built. It's another one. Um, there's heaps of these modular homes. Unfortunately, the banks don't like them in terms of the way they do finance. They can't control the risk. And so a lot of people think, well, I'll just do a modular home, but unfortunately you probably won't be able to get finance unless you're a cash buyer. Um, the other issue people have with building and doing knockdowns is really the end valuation. Mm. Um, valuations are sort of the thorn in our side, I guess, as a business. We, um, you know, when clients have got a property and they're looking to upgrade, um, they want to do a bridging loan or they want to do a refinance, um, we always cross our fingers when we order the valuation and most of the time we're disappointed because valuers have no incentive to, you know, be aggressive or be, uh, they'll always take the more conservative route um, because there's just no, you know, incentive for them and um, we're always going to be frustrated with the valuation. So when you do a build, you think I'll buy it for a million, I'll spend 500, it'll be worth 1.5. You'll find that the value will be a bit conservative and valued at 1.4, 1.35 and then it stuffs up your whole plan. You can't get a construction loan. Now you've got an unrenovated, a knockdown house that you can't rent um, and things can get messy quite quickly. Your build costs shoot up, um, et cetera. So just got to, be, got to be really aware of the risks. Um, whereas a renovation, I guess, ideally you can live in it a few years, There's you buy well, there's a bit of growth, you can save some money and then you can go and get a construction loan. And if you don't get it, then you can still live in the property. You're not kind of stitching yourself up. You just got to make sure that the property you buy to renovate is worth renovating. Now, we've got another question here. We've got a question from David. He says, is property investment enough uh, to retire off properly? He wants to understand the end game of retiring purely off property, but not necessarily off any other investments. So he wants to know, is it mm. virtually impossible and living off the equity has gone the way of the dodo with prudent lending? Is there a viable option to retire without selling down or without killing the geese that lay the golden eggs? Clear, implementable solutions is what's missing on this topic. It's all very theoretical out there, so perhaps pick a number like 100,000. How does one do it before the age of 60 without super and just fire property and without selling down half or most of the properties to get there? So what do you think on that one, Chris? So... Uh, being a financial planner for so many years, this is, you know, putting spreadsheets together, forecasting, trying to figure out how to do these sort of things. Uh, I've done more than once. Um, and uh, it's definitely possible, but you can't just come to uh, a mortgage broker or a financial planner in your 50s and say, I want to retire in five years. How do I do it? These <laughs> take 
you know, decades of constantly carefully managing your portfolio and carefully managing your debt. Um, and you've got to have that mindset from the start. So what you've ideally got to do is when you purchase property is, is try to keep the debt on that property as high as you can. Um, and the way that you do that is potentially you borrow on interest only or you borrow on principal and interest and then refinance every one or two years um, to keep extending your repayments. You use offset accounts. And ideally, when you get to retirement, you've got an enormous amount in offset accounts and you still own the property. And so you get to retirement um, and you've say, let's say you've got $3 million of property and you've got $1.5 million in offset accounts. Now, in that situation, you can live off the rent um, because it's fully offset. But if you need to sort of get access to cash because it's not enough for your income, then you can just use the money in the offset account. Now, the key thing is, is when you get to your 50s, at some point, you're not going to be able to do refinance again because banks are going to be saying you're getting too close to retirement. Um, some banks will still do it in the 60s. Um, and what you want to do is try to get the longest loan term you can as late as you can in life. So you're 55 or 58, you get a 30-year loan, which still does happen. Um, and so then you can live off that offset. You don't have to pay your loans down, um, et cetera. But reality is, you know, if you only got property, you should be really have super. I mean, if, even if you're a business owner, you know, it's a great opportunity to put money into super. If you're working, you should be putting money, you have money in super. So I, I can't see why you wouldn't have super unless you've just moved here from overseas or something. Um, and so really that's your, your other option. You can sell assets, not ideal, live off your offset account, live off your super. And then when you run out of money, um, there's a one final option, which is um, reverse mortgages. And now reverse mortgages are being not a big part of the mortgage market. Um, you know, it's, it's been quite difficult with responsible lending, et cetera, which is rightly so sometimes. Um, but responsible lending may change in 2021. And if it does, reverse mortgages would be a product that I could see come to market um, a lot more. Um, and then you could potentially live off a reverse mortgage without selling your properties. So um, that's kind of the overall strategy. It's carefully managing debt um, and living off offset accounts. So let me get this right. <laughs> it sounds it sounds a bit risky to me. So this the, this would hinge on you really buying quality assets, right? And because what you'd be doing, you're saying, so say you started off and bought a property for 400000 and you would have put in your $80,000 yep. deposit and then, you know, you get some equity build up in that and obviously hopefully you, you've got good income because you have to support the borrowing over time and then you just basically put, put yep. your interest and then everything else goes into the offset and then you buy another one and and then same deal so effectively you've only ever put in eighty thousand dollars right and so everything then goes in the Eventually, offset yeah. yeah and then when you retire you go right big fat offset offset account hopefully um and you've got all the debt that you've originally got basically still sitting there and yep. You were just yeah. basically recycling the money through the offset account and, and draining that and then hoping that when you get to the point where you've run out of that money, you can then go to the bank and say, look, there's enough equity now, I want to reverse mortgage, now I'm going to borrow against the equity gain. So effectively what you're saying is that you basically only ever spend $80,000 on an entire property portfolio under that circumstance in your entire you life. You have to save ridiculously hard. <laughs> but you have to save ridiculously hard. If you don't put money in the offset, yeah. then you're not Doesn't paying work. off your mortgages. So yeah. it's it's an offset accounts is only risky if um, you know what matters is your net loan. So I'm I'm happy to have three million dollars of loans if I've got a million dollars in the offset. My net loan is two million. So mm. what you're really doing is yes, you're taking out more loans, 
but you, you're what you're still doing the hard yards. You're still yeah. saving. You're still paying off your loans. But instead of paying off your through principal and interest and trying to get to retirement with the properties paid off, which is what a lot of people say: buy four properties, sell two, have two paying rent. Yeah. To me, that doesn't make sense. I'd rather have four properties um, through retirement, not be paying off the two. Four good properties keep growing, and then live off the offset accounts. Um, and so you do need to you do need to have good income because you need to be able to and not be able to always refinance. Um, yeah. And so you can't just be, you know, uh, otherwise you won't be able to get your interest only again. Otherwise you won't be able to extend your loan term. Um, and you've got to be great at saving. You've got to be committed to growing your offset account as high as you can. Um, there is an opportunity cost here as well because if you are putting money in offset accounts um, against loans, it does reduce your borrowing capacity for what you could do for further investing. Um, but, you know, ultimately I think that's a if the strategy is to retire with, you know, and live off the offset account, that to me is achieving your goals as well. So it's not about just trying to buy as much as you can sometimes. It's about your other goals. And leave a debt for all your your offspring. They can just sell off everything and then just tidy it up when you're gone. Sell off everything, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing is you don't want to pay capital gains tax. So, you know, let's say you bought a property at 40 and you're at 65 and you go, oh, I don't really want to sell it. Yeah. I'd much rather sell that and then give percent of that gains at 65 i'd rather give that 25 percent gains when i'm 80 and get that extra 15 years of gains in that property um yeah and you can Good pick point. and choose when you sell because mm. you go well i might sell this when i'm 72 because the market's super hot um you're not just going to get to retirement sell it all and just live off um yeah and that's actually a really good point because the thing is that, you know, if you're looking at your property portfolio, assuming you've got a few properties and, and, and you know, assuming one of those is a principal place of residence and the rest are investments, then, you know, we sort of think, oh, we've got X amount of equity, you know, they're worth X, take off, you know, what I owe and, and the rest is equity. But in reality, that equity, you owe the government sort of quarter of it. So it's not really yeah. your, we all for, I forget, I've forgotten that myself, you know, like, and then in fact to remind myself, mm-hmm. oh, that's not really mine. I can't really factor that into my, my thoughts about, you know, whatever my wealth is. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I've had this conversation before as well as the banks, I don't think they factor that in when they look at it as equity against further borrowings, do they? Do they look at that as a liability? No, no. That's one of the benefits of investing in property. If, if you can... Uh, let's say you buy a property at a million dollars and it goes to two million dollars. It's all big numbers probably for some people, but it's you know it's easy to talk this way. Um, then that property's gone up a million dollars. On paper, you've made a million dollars, but you can go back to a bank and redraw eight hundred thousand dollars of that mm. and reinvest that money and make more money, and you still haven't paid any capital gains tax. Yeah. If you do that with shares, and you wanted to, you can't really avery draw like that. But then potentially, if you do, you're not going to want to sell. It's it's not that easy. Um, and so the good thing about property is you only pay capital gains tax when you sell, which could be 30, 40 years down the line. So the government's waiting a long time to get the money from you. They are, but you also get access to that money in terms of being able to borrow against it. So you're borrowing yeah. against the, what you owe the government, which is quite fascinating really. But anyway, that's a different topic altogether. Now our third, uh, sorry, it's actually fourth question is from Anant. Now one of the things I would like to hear your view upon is how do you evaluate or research when you are, say, buying a market leader property in a suburb, especially if the price has been driven up not because it's a larger block than average, the house presumably, however due to renovation carried in recent years. So he says comparable sales are not helpful and future potential valuation is a bit tricky considering this is the top five or ten percentile and not the median for the suburb. Is there anything in particular that buyers should consider? 
I guess the market leader is a funny thing. Is it market leader just gone price selling today or is it a true market leader? Like it might be a market leader, which is kind of what he's alluding to there. It's not a larger block, but it's just a really nice Renault. I mean, mm. for me, I think in five years' time or 10 years' time, is that a market leader? Well, no, the Renault's aged. There's always nicer Renaults now. Hampton style is no longer far, uh, cool in 2030. Um is it the most beautiful frontage on a tree-lined street with a north-facing backyard with an amazing outlook and opposite a park and et cetera, et cetera, um, and there's only five of those in the suburb? That to me is a market leader. Yeah. Um, and so if you're going to stretch for anything um, and it's hard to value those because, in, in you know, they just never come on. I mean, you can look at 100 properties in a suburb, but you can never buy 100 properties. You can maybe buy five. Mm. And, it's highly unlikely they're going to be the best five in the suburb. It's more likely to be the lower end or um, the good properties just don't transact anywhere near as much as the poorer properties. It's very, very true. One thing I would say, though, and, and in many, many suburbs, this is the case with established suburbs where where they're family suburbs, so where the blocks are bigger and, and the homes are typically bigger. And so what actually happens is that a, a family renovates a home not to sell but to live in for 20 years. And so when they come on the market, it's usually they are dated. And so anybody buying in usually looks at them and thinks, oh, you know, I have to do this and this and blah, 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 new kitchen, knock out walls, blah, blah. So there'd be a level of renovation expected. Every now and then, and it's unfortunate, but there might be a divorce or there might be a relocation interstate or something like that, that actually brings one of these homes onto the market that was never intended, you know, it was not renovated with an intention to sell, but circumstances have brought it onto the market and they can sell at a premium purely because buyers in that area, they want that family home for 20 years. And if they can avoid having to do that full reno on something that's 20 years, dated, you know, by 20 years, then there is a premium that, that buyers will often yeah. pay for that sort of property. So it does come down to, you know, who the, the, the buyer pool, if you're looking at the top five or 10 percentile on a suburb, it's not necessarily because that property is the best one in the suburb. It's purely because that if those properties existed, they'd all be very well sought after and be expensive, but they just don't change hands. You know, and so that's one of the reasons why people might think this is the top five or ten percentile, but in reality, it's just it's just scarcity, and that's a different type of scarcity. It's when when a recent renovation, you know, it might be worth paying for. Yeah, I guess it's just I guess what uh, Ant is kind of saying here as well is that what should I be paying for this property? Let's say it's a good asset, it's a well done reno, it's one of those yeah. ones at first, you know, maybe it was that divorce story, right? They've done the reno. Um, the rental was too stressful potentially and that's what's caused the divorce. Um, I'm sure that's happened before. That's happened. Um, yep. And, um, yeah, and so at that stage there, what, what would you actually pay for this rental? I mean, if you put it down to some like breaking it up, I mean, you've got the the land, you know, that would be a good start really what's that land worth. Um, try to figure out what that reno would cost. Yeah, it's really difficult to work out what land is worth in these establishments. Yeah. So, and and in fact, one of my teams working on a, on one at the moment, and we've just been having that debate this morning. It's a very very hard thing to price. So, I'd be looking at you know recent sales of similar size of other homes on a similar size block of land, and factoring in what mm, the yeah. renovation would cost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to get at least so you know that. You know that you're not just paying for something that looks amazing today that's going to stack up in the mm. longer term and that's the thing you know you might get this amazing lifestyle and it all looks pristine but everything ages the fridge the ovens everything so 
Um, I'd just be a bit careful buying the market leader that's done through a renovation. I would only buy the market leader if it's the land because um, then one day you're going to sell it and it will still be the market leader. Um, yeah. so your growth rate's got to be faster than just a beautiful renovation. You're probably going to have to update again to sell it. So, um, yeah. Okay, we've got a question from Michael. He says he's noticed that when he looks in the Lower North Shore in Sydney that a lot of properties have high strata levies. Uh, he says, he's. I've heard councils are starting to audit strata-run buildings to confirm they have up to fire code, et cetera. Would be interested to hear your thoughts on this, including at what point it's okay, i.e. let's say they've done the, the roof, fireproofing and painting. However, they have windows and doors left on the list of works they've planned for the building. This is this has been an issue. It's interesting he says this in the Lower North Shore. It's something that started in the eastern suburbs probably about 10 years ago where we started noticing buildings being slapped with fire orders from council and the fire upgrading um, their fire uh, prevention or protection systems, you know, that can cost, can co- you can run into the, million, into the millions, really expensive work and they have no choice. And so quite often you'll see those buildings with high special levies or particularly if they've had a history of low uh, strata levies and, and there's two components to levies. There's the admin and there's also the what used to be called the sinking fund and now it's called the capital works fund. And look, in other states it's similar but different names but same principle. And the capital works fund is really that's what's being built up to maintain and do the larger jobs you know, mm. that need to be done. Basically, I spoke to a building inspector the other day. He said the minute a building is built, it starts deteriorating, you know. And so, you know, roofs will need replacing. Lifts will re- need upgrading and replacing. Windows need replacing. Uh, doors need replacing. And if you get slapped with a fire order, then you're going to have to probably replace doors with fire-rated doors and you're going to have to put, you know, hoses in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when when I see a strata report and I see that there's nothing noted in sort of building works and, well, they haven't spent money on things, I start to worry because that's that's yeah. a sitting duck. And one thing, one little, one little tip I'd say is look for the annual fire safety certificate because if they've been through this process, the council has required them to provide one of these every year and they have to provide it. And so that's great. When they don't have one, I always ask the strata manager, where is it? And quite often, even now, I get told, oh, they don't, they're not required to provide one. And I think to myself, well, that's only a matter of time. And Mm. if they haven't been proactive and on the front foot about this, they've probably got no concept of whether they would comply or not. And therefore, you've got no concept of what special levies you could be hit with if they did get an order placed. And so, you know, so that these are big risks. And I always would look in if they are in the process of doing works, you do want to see a good program of works. You want to see lots of quotes. You want to see uh, well-documented progress. So you've got a real sense of, as to how much is outstanding and what the potential cost to you as a buyer is going to be. Yeah, I think strata is a really interesting one. We get clients that will uh, look at properties and one of the things I'll say, you know, when they're debating over different properties is, oh, you know, it does have a high strata and, um you know, putting the off the plan high stratas that are for pools and concierge, gyms, etc., um, gardens, um, they're high strata and you're not getting a great asset for it. Um, that money is wasted. But when you talk about more, you know, Art Deco, more of these sort of smaller blocks, good assets, if they've got a high strata, I always generally think that's potentially a good thing um, because that's that money in high strata isn't getting lost. It's going into a pool. And I, I guess I would want to know more digging. What is that for? Um 
Is it for a very clearly documented renovation sort of repair strategy to the building? And is the building really nicely kept? Um, and is it all well documented? For me, I'd much rather pay a bit more than pay a bit less, you know, $1,200 a quarter versus 700 um, and get a building that's run down, no one's managing it, um, things need to be repaired, um, et cetera. So when you sell that property as well, um, you know, if over time it's getting you know, renovated and taken care of, more owner-occupiers will want to live in the building, you know, we create a bit of a name, it'll less turnover in the building. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd personally be focusing, rather than what's high, I'd be focusing on is it a quality asset, are they taking care of it, mm. um, and we're not too worried about the, the high strata itself. I mean, the fire code, et cetera, um, yeah, I mean, if that's a risk and it hasn't been talked about or any risk to the building, um, you just got to be careful with those sort of um, stratas that aren't take, doing the due diligence, I guess. Well, this is the thing. They're not taking the managing of the building and the asset seriously. And, and so, you know, we see also there's a number of other upgrades that have been legislated in recent years, you know, window height, for instance, the, the ability of a window to open past the size of a baby's head, basically. And so, you know, they, they don't want people falling out of windows in apartment buildings. And, and only last week, a four-year-old fell out of a window. And I'm thinking, how the hell can that even happen? But I still go through buildings mm. and I notice that the sill height is below a metre and I know that you can open and you can open those windows wider than a baby's head. So that means that people can fall out of the windows. And that's a danger. And that shows to me that that strata um, management slash owners corporation are not paying attention balustrades another one if they're less than building code which i think is a meter high you know if the low balustrades people can fall over them it's a death you know it's a it's a hazard pool safety classic um cladding you know so we've had all this uh flammable cladding issue well you know some buildings don't even have a handle as to whether they're clad with flammable cladding or not and, and asbestos is another one so you want evidence that these buildings take this stuff seriously and take managing it seriously so all of these things if they ever do get audited or, or something god forbid happens like that four-year-old falling out of the window well i'm surprised there wasn't a lot of mention in the paper about well who's responsible for that because you would think that if um, they're meant to have upgraded that building by now, then someone hasn't been doing their job and there's a liability issue. So it's and that's aside from the fact that a poor little four-year-old is either, and I don't know what happened to him, but, you know, he may not be with us anymore, but he may be severely injured, you know, and the trauma of, of all that on everybody. Yeah, when you're buying in these buildings, the reality is you can't outsource anything in life. It's your personal responsibility and accountability falls on you you can't after you've signed a contract moved into it say oh i looked at the strata port probably should look at that before we moved in and you know oh god this is you know, no one's really managing it and then you start to create yourself all these problems so you know do your due diligence up front know what you're signing up for and you know personally take the risk on someone who's paying a bit more strata but someone's carefully managing the building um, and there's a real good clear line of action to fix things is, is a lot less risk and no paperwork Oh, yeah. Look, due, due diligence is so important and, and I think one of the big issues is that people just don't know what they don't know and so therefore they often don't even realise I can check this stuff out and if I can just chuck in a little plug for my other podcast, my new podcast, Chris, Home Buyer Academy with Megan Wells. We've got your first home buyer guide and we're covering a lot of the actual how to buy property in that podcast because people just don't know. You know, you, you go into these things mm -hmm 
your eyes half open and it's it's not good enough. Like you say, it's our responsibility and fundamentally the buck stops with us when we're buying something as expensive as a property. That's right. Okay. Now, last question from Andrew. Um, do sustainable properties receive a premium on the potential property value, i.e., is there any analysis on buyers being willing to pay more for a sustainable product? Interestingly, it is obvious that consumers are willing to part with more money for an ethical benefit on smaller purchases, such as organic food. However, I have not been able to locate any information of people being willing to adopt this on larger purchases like property. Now, have you, in your research, been able to find anything, Chris? I haven't found too much, but um, in Melbourne, there are a lot of sort of developments that are going down this route. Um, you know, the Nightingale sort of project, um, a lot in those sort of smaller boutique apartments um, are coming, going down this direction. So they're going down that direction. I think they're obviously a market. That's in a certain pocket of Melbourne. It's in one city um, in Australia. It's not across the whole board. And I, I imagine that would be the case, you know, certain areas of, certain cities would be willing to um, be more likely to sort of compete. If you're doing a renovation, is there a sort of payback on them? I mean, potentially if you get two buyers that really want that sort of sustainable house um, and they compete on your property, but if there's only one person who really wants the sustainable um, sort of is not going to pay any more, right? So you do need, uh, and I guess it's different things, you'll get different bang for buck, you know, water tank that's under the house, people probably won't care about too much because they won't see it, but you know, solar panels, maybe they will, or maybe it's the materials you use in your renovation or et cetera. So, um, yeah, I do think it's one of those things like, you know, electric cars. I do think it's probably just an early adopters, but it's maybe not the mass market yet. And when the mass market want it, then maybe there's, um, you know, if you haven't got a sustainable house, people don't want it. But I think we're some time away uh, from that reality. It is a bit of a shame that we... You know, I think I agree. I think we are a fair way away from this. There, there's quite a lot of initiatives going on. I know the New South Wales government is actually behind some initiatives, which is around creating the demand from consumers because it's a it's a very um, it's a it's a delicate issue. Yeah, okay, and when I say delicate, that's because there's a lot of vested interests that are involved in trying to keep uh, a lot of sustainable um, initiatives out of new buildings. You know, like the and I don't want to name anybody because I haven't actually done my research on this, but, you know, you can imagine various lobby groups are saying, no, 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 it's a bad idea to actually legislate to make it it essential that all new housing projects, for instance, have to have solar panels. Now, you know, what makes me, you Mm. know, those aerial shots of new subdivisions and there's, you know, kilometre after kilometre of roof and not a tree in sight. There's nothing in the way of using all of that roof space for, you know, certainly the north-facing roof space for solar panels and yet, when do you see a solar panel on a new subdivision? So this is this is sort of behind. I think the government is really saying, well, okay, well, what we need to do is get consumers to demand it, but that's going to take a long time. And if you remember any technology, you know, I'm thinking back my days at, at university learning about marketing, any new technology has got the early adopters and they'll pay a premium for new technology. You know, I remember when CD players were invented. Do you remember that, Chris? You're probably still in nappies. And, you know, the first CD, the first CD players, you pay a fortune for them and then, then they get into mass production and everyone's getting a CD player. I mean, and so on with everything, right? Electric cars and on and on. But, I, but I, also there is a payback period. And so when the cost of production comes down, more people will actually put solar panels on their roof because the the, the payback period will shrink, you know, as, as if 
uh, our power costs continue to rise and the cost of a panel comes down, there'll come a point where it makes sense for more consumers to actually take, you know, make those decisions. But I agree, unfortunately, there's it's early days. When you look at, um, you know, you go into Woolies or Coles and you look in the organic section of the, um, or even the ugly section, right, in the fruit and veg area, it's still only a small proportion of the whole floor space that they've got dedicated to produce. And and I think that's sort of pretty much is a good, a, um, you know, uh, analogy for what it's like trying to find buyers who are prepared to pay a premium and can afford to pay a premium for a more sustainable product. I would like to think there's a lot more out there and there's a lot more delivered to that market, but it's it's early days. Yeah, I think if you're renovating a house in an area where that sort of is, is not early days, you know, there are certain pockets that are, I guess, a bit more forward thinking in terms of, um, you know, living more sustainably and climate change and, um, you know, those communities may be willing to um, want that because it's seen as desirable and it's a status thing potentially. Um, but, yeah, you're right, house and land package in the fringes, you know, it should be prime where you'd be building that stuff. But a lot of that is the affordability market, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately um, if you price your product a bit more expensive, um, the consumers will say, oh, well, you know, let's just cut it back. It's our first home. Let's not go and, go and get the solar panels and the water tank and et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's just buy something a little bit cheaper. Um, unfortunately, that's what happened, and the whole market won't move unless someone does it. If that sells really well, then everyone will have to follow suit. But um, who's brave enough to do it first? And I've definitely seen some trends in the smaller development space um, you know, around Brunswick and things like that, there's lots of um, those sort of sustainable developments. You know, there are some arguments that some sustainable features, in fact, probably many now, are not that much more expensive, if any more expensive, than the alternative. It's the perception that it might cost more and so therefore it's not put in, which is really shocking. And, you know, it's like when I watched War on Waste. You know, I love that show and um, hate what happens and why it's necessary, but it's a great show. And, and you see that, you know, the the produce exec from, you know, one of the, the major supermarkets standing there trying to trying to justify that the consumers want certain size banana. And I'm like, this is so chicken and the egg, isn't it? I mean, this is the big um, oligopoly supermarket telling us that we are demanding a certain size banana, but you go, is did you did we start demanding a certain size banana or did you start stocking it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like yeah. and telling us that that's the best size banana. And so how does this all come about? And and I think, you know, what I'd love to see is, is developers, you know, doing it the other way around, actually doing it properly and then telling the consumers that this is what you want, don't you? <laughs> you know, it's just anyway. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, this is, I'd love to see some serious change in this area. Yeah, and I think it will come because I think you're right. Once that sort of developer does do that, their, potentially their neighbours, their other buildings around them aren't selling as well. Mm. Um, and then everyone will start following suit. So it's just a trend. I think every year building will have to get better. Um, you know, there is all the highlights on building issues and to get the trust back with people, we need to get better products and, um, and then we're going to build a lot over the next couple of decades. And so... I think that's the real worry. If you've got an apartment or a building that isn't well built, isn't that special, um, I do think you've got to be future, scared about future supply risk um, because a lot's going to get built and I do think the quality is going to improve dramatically over the coming decade. You probably should um, mention that all that rumbling in the background when you speak, um, Chris, is about your landscapers doing all that lovely digging. 
dumping of supplies, <laughs> just in case anyone was worried about you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, let's see who's got a Dumbo. Have you got a Dumbo for us this week? It's not so much a Dumbo because it probably is, um, it's just an unfortunate trend that I do see um, at the start of sort of when markets are picking up, um, when you've got that sort of, you know, there has been a bit of a decline in the market um, for some reason. I'm using the market and I hate using the word the market, but, you know, the, there's a lot of negative press. Um, prices are falling. You know, it's maybe the 2018 or maybe um, the late 2017 or it's maybe through COVID sort of time as well. Market's going to crash. Um, and a lot of people sit on their hands because they want to see certainty. Humans love certainty. Um, and then prices start rising and then they, they say that we're just going to park the decision. But then when you sort of go back and ask them a year later and say, what are you doing with the decision? Because prices are rising, they've kind of got confirmation bias now and they also think that prices can't continue to rise. And so they sit on their hands a bit longer. Um, and then ultimately they just completely miss um, the opportunity because they're trying to time the market rather than focusing on investment fundamentals buying a scarce asset. And we all know that 2018 was a great time to buy. We also know that earlier this year was also a really good time to be buying. So, um, yeah, it's just sort of kind of rather than just thinking about trying to read the press and try to pick and time where things are going, focus on investment fundamentals, getting a, getting a fair price on a quality asset and just knowing that time will sort these things out. You know, it's not going to matter what happens so much in the next two years. You've got a quality asset. You can write it out. Um, so, yeah, be careful trying to time the market with property because I just did a lot of re-engagement with the start of the year, going over sort of clients we spoke to last year. And, yeah, there's, there's a handful that kind of are in that sort of predicament now and they're like, well, actually, no, we're just going to sit on the sidelines for another year. Um, and I just think that's very sort of dangerous if you're trying to sort of just get one great investment property, for example. Yeah, look, I agree. And it, it been doing this for 20 years now and, and seriously, it's every time is a good opportunity the amount of people who, well, the majority fail to take advantage of it, <laughs> and you know, and then and now it's like it's that whole idea about sitting on your hands at the beginning of a market um, when it takes off, and it's like, well, you're guaranteeing you're not going to buy ever, you know, if you do that. But you know, it is all about quality asset. You know, quality assets are scarce in good times and bad times. They are hard to buy always. And, you know, and this is why I say really it, you can't time the market. You've got to buy when it's right for you and it might not be right for you now and that's fine. So it's got nothing to do with the market. It's got to do with you. And if you can't find the right property, it's not the right time to buy. You buy when you find the right property and when you're ready. And and then if you do that, then you just commit to your, your purchase for long term and it doesn't matter, you know, what goes up, what goes down, you know, the short term variations of the market, they don't, they don't matter. I think the key thing with that, the final thing, is that when the market does go down, so 2018 or even this year, the quality properties, similar properties to you, you know, there's not that many of them. It's mm. not like you're in an apartment now and there's heaps and heaps of apartments getting built and there's heaps on the market. That's not a great asset. So you would be scared if there was a downturn in the future. Mm. It's like owning a share um, into a market crash. If it's not a great company, it's not going to hold its value through this downturn, right? So um, yeah, if you've got a quality asset, what happens is is actually less people decide to sell because they go, it's not a great time to sell. And that really buffets you because the supply doesn't hit the market, which is, and that holds prices. Um, and there's still demand, there's still people desperate to get into those streets in those suburbs. So if someone does decide to sell, there's still usually more buyers than sellers because um, mm. people have been dying to get a quality asset in that suburb. 
That's exactly right. I've seen people lose money in a boom because they had a crap asset and I've seen people make money in a downturn because they had an excellent asset. And so, you know, that's mm. that's it all comes down to asset quality and people are making decisions on what to do with their homes and, and investment properties based on, you know, cash flows and all that sort of stuff. And I get if you're in a situation you're forced to sell because you really cannot hold afford to hold a property, then that is very, very unfortunate. But a lot of people sit down and do they make the decisions based on spreadsheets and they absolutely fail to consider how good is this asset? Should I keep this one in preference to something else? You know what I mean? So, and, and I actually an email landed in my, in my inbox only this morning about sort of, you know, from a software sort of service trying to give people the tools to decide whether to sell or hold. And, and I'm like, oh my God, it just misses the point. It, it goes into the numbers on its own, cannot be considered on their own, have yeah. to be considered in the context of how good that bloody asset is or isn't. <laughs> anyway, I could rant yeah. about that for hours. No, but it's I so true. We got an email. I was, I was on the same call with the there client today and, um, you know, he's got um, three properties and two of them he knows, you know, from our conversations over the last two or three years, they're just not great properties. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he emailed me over the break and I said, yeah, let's have a chat. Um, and, the reality is the conversation has been the same every year. He knows it. He's fully aware of it. We make a joke about it. Um, and it's just he's got to go through the pain. Um, for, you know, there's never going to be a great time to sell these properties. Um, it's really hitting home that they're not great assets. Um, and what it's doing is he's got a bit of capacity left. He probably can afford to buy, um, if he sold them, one great property. And what he's losing is time by just sitting on it and not dealing with the poor assets. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely an individual sort of situation, individual property um, rather than, yeah, buy or sell or it's a, you know, you can do it on a computer. I just don't think that's ever going to happen. Oh, it's mortifying. But, I mean, the thing is, and then maybe that's how they bought the thing in the first place, which is, you know, another another Dumbo mistake. But, you know, it, it's um, it's hard to admit we stuffed up. And the thing is that when we buy, we, we are wired to justify our decisions. You know, when we first buy a property, you know, some people have post-purchase dissonance, but quite often, you know, quickly that'll be replaced with lots of, lots of good justification. We seek positive reinforcement, you know, confirmation bias, all that sort of stuff. And, and we're going, yeah, 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 we made a good decision. Yeah, we made a good decision. So we seek that, that information that will reinforce that idea. And, and, it's really, really agonising to admit maybe I stuffed up and people don't want to do it. And then then they'll avoid selling a bad asset because that really confronts that realisation and nobody really wants to admit it. So it's a tough one and I struggle. Yeah, I think you should be confident to admit it because you shouldn't feel guilty or, you know, or feel bad or anything. You were making that decision based on all the information. You weren't trying to stuff up your own financial future. You were trying to do something that was good for yourself. Um, unfortunately, the system is very heavily against you if you don't know what you're doing, and um, uh, and you just don't you just didn't know who didn't know what you didn't know, right? And so, yeah. but now you do know. Do you forgive yourself it. and move forward? I think that, yeah, exactly. And so, um, just hiding your head in the sand um, isn't going to get rid of that guilt. Totally. Now, um, one little thing that I um, have come up with which is a little bit of a dumbo, and and that is in New South Wales there's this thing called limited title and um, so it's a bit of a Sydney thing and it's really sort of an old established uh, suburbs of Sydney as well. And so what limited title is it before? So most houses in this country are Torrens title. So it's actually was a um, invention um, 
an Australian invention, a, a way of, of sort of owning ownership of property and to document that ownership and um, invented in WA, sorry, South Australia actually, but not that that really matters. And so when that was invented, before that, there was a system of ownership called Old Systems, Old Systems Title. And there's this limitation that is on some properties that hasn't yet been properly converted from old systems. And it's not uncommon, you know, in my office in Balmain, certainly when I was a sales agent, it was not uncommon to see a limited title or qualified title, which are two of these sort of um, aspects of old systems title that need to come off a title, right? And, you know, it's never been a real bugbear. It's just like, oh, well, that's just old, that's just old systems, not that uncommon, but, you know, it doesn't mean you can't buy the property. Literally in the last couple of months, it's come up with us with a number of our clients and these limited um, title properties that the the banks don't like them. And so, okay, what and what limitation is, is that the actual boundaries haven't been sort of verified by the uh, land tiles office. So they need a special survey being sent in and, and we've been given some advice that costs about $5,000 to upgrade them to proper torrents title. But people have bought these properties over the years and because they've been able to buy it sort of relatively simply, hasn't been a real problem, they've never really thought about it. They've put it on the market to sell. They've not really thought about it. The agents hasn't really thought about it. Um, buyers don't realise they would, you know, get their broker to do whatever needs to be done. The broker doesn't usually see the front page of the contract till after they've exchanged contracts, so after they're actually committed to it. Some lawyers are clued up on it, but this is another reason why you need a property lawyer who might actually flag it and go, hey, did you realise this is limited title? Banks don't really like this. And this is how we came across it through one of our clients. Um and so what, and then now we've started digging and saying, well, what's the story? So we know that we can't go for limited title properties for some of our clients. And so it was previously not a problem, previously not a problem. A lot of buyers are not realizing they've got this problem and then they'll go and buy the property and they'll only discover it during settlement. And so then they might have to get a survey, but the actual title, some banks are saying it needs to be changed. So then that the vendor has to do that. So this is this is a bit of a dumbo because it's like it's a real mm-hmm. it's a real risk for some people, but nearly everybody doesn't know about it. Yeah, it's interesting. We definitely have had clients buy a limited title. I remember one in Lilyfield a couple of years ago, and we just got a sort of surveyor's report done on it, and it was all fine with the bank, but it did create a little bit of a hurdle in that sort of process. And I, it was a very fast deal. It was bought off market, and um, yeah, it was. And so I think, I'm not sure we had to settle late or anything like that, but I remember we had a bit of a back and forth with the bank and it was all okay. Just recently we had to check for another client and it was okay um, with one bank that they were pre-approved with. But, you know, it's not something that is, is probably that often brokers will see. I think the real Dumbo here is probably the seller. Um, mm. They probably also don't realise that the problems they're creating for buyers um, and the last thing you do is want to create problems for your buyers. You want buyers to be, if they're hot, and they're emotionally interested in your property, the best time to sell to them is when they're in that state. And if they start hitting hurdles like limited title and they start they start to want to, it's work, it's pain. I don't want to do that work. I'll just find another property. It starts to fall out of love with the property. Um, and so I would definitely, if I was selling a limited title, make sure it wasn't um, because I wouldn't want any problems with my buyers potentially having any issue with finance, even having to ask their bank. Um, for me, that's creating you know barriers. Yeah, totally. So this is, you know, we're, the advice that we've been given is that, um, you know, the vendor would need to actually have the title up 
integrated. So it's more than just providing a survey these days. So, and this is something that, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So watch this space. I got all excited for a minute. I said, right, that's it. We're just going to do a bit of a survey and look at any good property around this limited title. And our, our investors that have got cash, you know, they'll be in the box seat and then they can just spend five grand bringing it up to speed when they bought it. But it's not that simple because it'd be different if every buyer found out on the 11th hour just before going to auction and then all of a sudden the auctions failed. That would be his fantastic opportunity. Mm-hmm the buyers aren't realizing they're still going to auction so it's after that they're going to find out that's a dumbo yeah it is indeed right well on that note we're gonna say adios and please send some more questions through to us because as you can see we do enjoy having these sort of rumble tumble episodes and and hitting the nitty-gritty of the things that you guys have been wondering about so thank you for sending through your questions and please send more via the website absolutely any questions we'd love to to read them i think the only other thing i'd love for our listeners to do is send through some Central topics that we haven't covered, we've got some really interesting ones coming up with infrastructure and commercial property and smart homes and all sorts of good things coming. But any topics that you thought that we haven't covered that we'd love to get a specialist on to pick their brain? Please join us for our next episode. We have Stuart Weems joining us and we're going to be discussing whether it's a fair comparison to say that houses make better investments than apartments. A few controversial discussions through this episode, so join us and find out and make your own mind up. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.